0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Lindsay McDonald and host Michael Lerner, co-presented with Cancer Choices.
1: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Kira Epstein, the program coordinator at the New School at Commonweal. Today, we welcome metastatic breast cancer thriver, Lindsay McDonald to the New School. She'll be talking with our host and director, Michael Lerner, as part of our co-presented series with Commonweal's Cancer Choices program. We are recording the conversation and we'll have the produced audio and video files available on both the New School and the Cancer Choices websites. And you can also find all of our recordings on the New School's SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify feeds. So now I turn things over to Michael. Again, thank you all for joining us at the New School at Commonweal.
2: Thank you, Kira. And welcome, Lindsay McDonnell.
3: Thank you, Michael. Very excited.
2: Wonderful. And I'm so glad that Nancy Hep and Laura Pohl from our Cancer Choices team are here with us today as resources. Um, uh, We'll see, uh, depending on how our conversation goes, uh, how we may draw on their wisdom, but Nancy and Laura, thank you both for being with us. Yeah, wonderful. So Lindsay, you have done so many things in your uh, journey, that's such a strange word, but there it is, your journey with cancer. where where would you like to start in terms of just um, who you are, how you find yourself today? Just open it up. Where would you like to start our conversation?
3: It's um, a good question. So I think where I would like to start is the present, and who I am today is an, is I lived my life a good life. I'm still living it. And um, I've had cancer, a lot of cancer, for nine years. And I am living an absolute life of joy, even with that state. And um, I've learned a lot along the way. And mostly, I've learned to truly appreciate all of the joy that can be found in life at this time. And I live it. And I'm happy.
2: That's beautiful. And Kira Epstein just put in the chat for those of you who are with us live, uh, that you are a speaker, cancer coach, the author of Your Dance with Cancer. Uh, You're a nine-year thriver with metastatic breast cancer and chronic myeloid leukemia. You are project lead certified with the National Breast Cancer Coalition. A certified integrative oncology navigator with Smith Center for Healing and the Arts, our sister organization. A You Can Thrive coach and a Cancer Choices guide. You have both a Facebook page and your website, Your Dance with Cancer dot com, and you have a book by that name. So we do. Yeah, you've done a lot with it, and on your website, uh, you shared recently that your markers uh, for cancer after a long quiescent period had suddenly surged upward. Um, how How did you respond to that experience?
3: This is a really great question. So it was completely unexpected. My tumor markers, which are very accurate for me. have been in the normal range for a number of years, maybe four years. And all of a sudden, I came back from vacation. I went and had my blood done, which is done every month. They look at the tumor markers all the time. And all of a sudden, it was slightly more than doubled. And I was well out of normal. It had not been that high maybe in eight years. Mm-hmm. And I was stunned. I was a little freaked out. For a couple of days, I just sat and thought, oh, Jesus, I don't want to go through this again. I've been through different treatments over and over and over. And I didn't know why it was happening." I take my stableness not for granted, but for a very um, stress free living. And um, there they were. So, as I am freaking out, I decided, wait a minute, I am a cancer coach. What would I tell myself? And it was interesting. And then I thought I would tell myself, You know what? Be freaked out for a little bit of time. And then we have to start getting curious and we have to figure out what we want to do with this information. I knew what I wanted to do was to schedule all the scans that I could in case we needed to figure out where this was coming from. I called my oncologist. She scheduled everything. Um, I had it done. And I watched as each one came back as stable, still have all my cancer, but nothing was progressing. And then we did the blood work two weeks later, and it went back to normal. And I was like, what? It was some sort of a glitch in the world of numbers and so i was able actually to learn that what i have been preaching um really did help me and to remember that it's okay to feel really scared for for a little bit of time but i know that for my own longevity, success, I have to be able to maintain my curiosity. And fear crushes it. So when I got out of the fear, I could start moving forward.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, that issue of uh, uh, test results uh, that uh, scare people badly and then turn out not to be accurate is a big big issue I mean uh just uh the range of situations where including as you know with cancer diagnoses themselves in other words, people are not uncommonly diagnosed with the wrong cancer and yeah. and the need to um, uh to to review your diagnosis um pretty substantial if you're the kind of person who really doesn't assume that the first reading of a a slide or the first blood test is necessarily accurate.
3: I've never felt that it was. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Partially because of the journey that I've been on, there's been a lot of times that people were wrong. And there was a lot of times that I had to push for a different test, a different um, chemo, a different anything to see if we could actually find out what was really going on. The perfect example of this is I um, was lucky enough to do a chemosensitivity test during my treatment when I was overseas. And it came back saying literally nothing was going to help. And I said to the doctor, please, can we do a biopsy instead of a liquid biopsy, which is just your blood being taken? And he said, Lindsay, it's really almost always the same. And I said, can we just, stop on that almost and see and do the tumor marker test and do the other chemosensitivity test on the the biopsy. And he said, okay. So we went and did that and it came back that there were things that would actually help me. It was very different than the liquid biopsy. So without that, I wouldn't have found the things that would actually make a difference. Yeah, it's
2: so true and of course you and I both know that people are so different and that you know some people they get a cancer diagnosis and all they want to do is go ahead with the first oncologist that they have talked to trust that person and do the treatment they recommend and come out the other end and that's a perfectly legitimate Way to go, you know, and then there are those of us who, uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, you know, like to check, <laughs> we like to check whether the first person we talk talked to has the, the whole truth, you know. Uh, you know, you know, Mark Reniker's work. Have you ever talked to Mark? Or do you No, know
3: I've watched him, but I haven't talked to him. Well,
2: Mark Reniker, you. you know, is the, the founder of the field of uh, medical advocacy. And it, his good friend, he's a, one of the founders of the Surfer's Medical Association, a completely extraordinary man on the faculty at UCSF School of Medicine. And when he takes a client, He says that at the beginning, a client with cancer, his goal is to disprove the diagnosis. He sets out to disprove the diagnosis and therefore looks at all the tests that the person has had just to see whether everything has been checked. You know, so that what we started with at the start, that as you've said, you've had many experiences in your journey where a test wasn't right. Absolutely. You know, Mark always says, talk to at least two surgeons, you know, before a surgery. You know, I think it's fundamental to talk to at least two oncologists, you know, just they they don't all have the same point of view. They don't. Tests aren't always going to be right. So this is pretty fundamental. And most people don't know that because how could they know? They just think, you know, this guy knows everything or this woman knows everything. They've told me this, that's the truth. Why should I go elsewhere? But in fact, if you were a physician and this was someone in your family, you would always ask for a second opinion, you know?
3: Always. When I got leukemia, um, well, before I even say that, So one of the things that I always do is I follow my blood tests, my tumor markers, anything that I can follow, I follow. And when there's a little change, I ask why. And doing that really helped with my leukemia diagnosis. My oncologist, who I adore, I'm watching my white blood cells go up higher and higher and higher. And I said to her, I think it's leukemia because I had looked at the numbers and I had done some research. And she said, No, it's definitely not leukemia. You don't want leukemia. I'm like, No, but I think it might be that. We waited two more months and still the numbers were going up. And finally she said, Okay. I'll do a a bone biopsy. Two days later, she calls me. Yes, you have leukemia. It's CML. So it's not even as much about finding all the tests. It's about being able to communicate with your doctor, express your fears, decide whether there's something to do, and to really be clear on why you're asking.
2: Yeah, I I mean, obviously you are unusual in the depth. Well, you're unusual in several ways. You're uh, unusual that you've done as well as you have for this long. You're unusual in the depth of your engagement and research. You're unusual in the number of different therapies. You just told me something I didn't know before, that you were the one that insisted on the leukemia test. So the simple truth of the matter is that some people with cancer or anything else, um, that we become more expert than any of our practitioners, that we're tracking more carefully, we know more what's going on, plus we have our intuition. And our intuition is no insignificant thing because there's good science that our intuition gives us yet another arrow in our quiver in terms of understanding what's going on with us.
3: What's also important is, for me at least, to always have a plan B. So if I'm not getting where I need to get, whether the tumor markers aren't dropping or I'm not able to convince the doctor that I. this is important, that this is a test that has to be done. Um, I've been very lucky over the last nine years to actually put together a team of doctors. So I have one who I've only talked to on the phone in Florida. I did some other treatment in Mexico City, So he's on my team. So when I am really confused about something and I'm not getting anywhere with, say, my oncologist, who is very thorough, that I will call one of them and say, can you take a look at this? Can you take a look at this? What are we thinking about this? And that really has been a very winning combination. So you have your regular con-
2: uh, oncologist who you love and who listens to you and is very responsive which is very smart uh what kind of uh person or what kind of treatment did you seek out in mexico
3: in mexico city there was a doctor um who injected right into the tumors uh he he uh it was OX40, which I don't exactly know how to explain that. I believe it's an immunotherapy drug, plus a couple of others. And um, he. it was a three-day treatment. It was very easy. And he injected them into it. But he was a very, very good cancer doctor. His name was Dr. Jason Williams. Um, he's now in Cabo. Then in Vienna, which was a huge one, and Dr. Cleef, who was in Vienna, the first place that I went, um, and I ended up going back there five times, he was someone that really looked at the whole picture, the entire thing. And when I got leukemia, I called him. I said, what do you think this is? And he confirmed my idea that we needed to look into this further, that it wasn't just the cancer load I was carrying.
2: Now, Wolfgang Cleef, who you went to see, is uh, a world-class integrative uh, practitioner. Obviously, like all world-class integrative practitioners, different people have different views of him, but nonetheless, he is world-class. Ralph Moss thinks very highly of him, among many others. So, Again, uh, you're so unusual, uh, not unique, but unusual that not only have you worked with all the resources you could find in this country, but you've been willing to go to uh, uh, to Mexico City, to uh, uh, Austria. Um, what I understand why you would have gone to Wolfgang Cleve because he is so well-known and so highly regarded by those who espouse his work. Uh, But how did you come across the person in Mexico City? And more important, what caused you to choose him? Because you and I both know, I mean, I studied a dozen of the clinics in Tijuana many years ago, and Mexico is filled with alternative cancer centers. Um, How did you find the person in Mexico City and what caused you to
3: trust them? That's a great question. Um, So what happened was I, because I had such good luck with Cleef, I wanted to find a doctor who was closer than Vienna. And so I found actually Dr. Mark Rosenberg in Boca Raton. And I started talking to him about what was going on. And at that point, there was a pretty heavy tumor load. And he suggested going to Mexico to Dr. Williams. I then called Dr. Moss, who is a consultant, and you know, and I said, What do you think about Dr. Williams's work? And he said, I don't know. He said, um, He very much respected Dr. Rosenberg. He thought that Williams was doing a good job, but it was a choice for me between going back to Vienna or going somewhere different. And him saying, I don't know, to me was an opening. It was he wasn't saying no. He was saying, I'm not sure yet. So that was enough for me to say, hey, I'm going to go to Williams and try it. And Williams is not, you very rarely, excuse me, you don't go back very often to get the same treatment. So I figured a one-time treatment, it was worth going there. Did it make a difference? I actually don't know. At the same time, I was doing the medications for other, you know, other cancers, um, the breast cancer and the leukemia, but it didn't hurt me. There you go.
2: Um, Laura Paul just uh, posted a note in the chat. Ralph Cleese recently died of COVID, a big loss for Lindsay. Uh, They are not going to continue his clinic work. And you just found that out. Yeah, that's devastating. Yeah, that's a big loss. Yeah.
3: He was also my friend. Yeah. And so it's a huge loss, not Mm -hmm. just to me, but to the integrative oncology world.
2: Are there other people on your screen uh, that you may not have used yet, but you said you always like a plan B? Mm -hmm. Are you continuing to scan for people that you may want to consult with?
3: Absolutely. When my numbers went up. Three weeks ago, I had to, after I came out of the fear and after I asked for the scans, I immediately started working on a plan B. And I found a clinic in Germany that I thought would be a good choice. Um, That clinic was hallowing, but there were four others that I thought would also be good choices.
2: So, do you uh, work with Ralph Cleef's uh, list of uh, cancer clinics in Europe as one of your resources? I'm uh, sorry.
3: Ralph but... Moss's, yeah. Right, Ralph um, Moss, yeah. I do. At mm-hmm. this point, I also, there's a couple of people who are very, very good on Facebook. Um, there's a man with pancreatic cancer. That has started a site called Patient Led Oncology. Oh,
2: I know that site. We're we're very interested in it.
3: He's doing terrific work. And he I was had actually pancreatic cancer, didn't he? He does. Yeah. And he still does. Yeah. Um, I was in touch with him at the very beginning. I don't remember, I think he called me for some reason. Mm-hmm. And um I so I follow him. In fact, my story was on his uh Facebook page a while ago. And um he does a very good job of researching clinics, kind of what like Moss used to do, mm-hmm. but he's not doing as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And he's very uh open to being asked questions about where does he suggest people look at. Mm. You he's know, doing a great job.
2: I'm going to bring something up that I really want your reflections on. Um, It's a challenge that I've been facing in this work recently and discussing with my colleagues at Cancer Choices. You know, for I've been doing this work for 40 years, and I've had a kind of a basic message that I've offered people, which is, you know, um, you know, choices in healing, conventional therapies, complementary therapies, pain and suffering, death and dying. Then that was expanded recently by my colleagues at Cancer Choices uh, to include self-care, uh, which I thought was good because it separated out self-care from complementary therapies. But my my advice to people was always, you know, start with conventional therapies. They're the only ones with proven cures for some cancers and also strong evidence of effective palliative care that can improve your life and potentially extend it. So start with conventional and then add uh, health-promoting integrative therapies that make sense to you. Uh, And then, you know, obviously deal with pain and suffering, which is a big issue. And so many people suffer unnecessarily because they don't. Get the palliative support uh, that they can get. Even early on, you can have palliative support, even with a primary cancer. And so, and then, of course, the the big subject of how we face death and dying. So, I've had this wrap, if you want, for a long time. But what I ha- and I'd been following on cancer choices with my colleagues for the last six years as we built out. First, beyond conventional cancer therapies and then cancer choices as considered the best in class on the web uh, in terms of objective evaluation. But what I hadn't been doing, Lindsay, is following the literature, which I was aware of, but I hadn't been following it carefully. About the limitations of conventional and experimental therapies, I had not been doing that, and so recently I did a conversation with Wayne Jonas, M.D., who's an astonishing pioneer of the field, very balanced, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, medical reserve of the uh, at the VA and works at the VA, uh, and just an incredible, extraordinary man. And I encourage people to watch that um, at tns.commonweal.org or at cancerchoices.org. And uh, and he showed a slide that showed, and I won't have the this exact, but he looked at 19 years of new cancer therapies. Um, and there were very large numbers of therapies. And the increase in median survival or average survival with all these new therapies was something like 2.5 months.
3: <laughs> Jeez,
2: 2.5 months. And so I thought, oh my goodness. So I I looked around and I found, uh, uh, Wayne helped me find it, a book by a UCSF uh, oncologist, my handshake so it'll be a little shaky here, uh, VK Prasad called Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. All right. Yes. And it was an extraordinary book. And then I said to uh, Wayne, what else should I read? Well, he turned me on to another book by a professor of oncology at Columbia, Osra uh, uh, Raza, called The First Cell and the Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. All right. Yes. And I remembered another book that my friend and colleague Susan Braun, who headed the uh, uh, the ASCO Foundation, American Society of Clinical Oncology Foundation. She was the head of Komen for the Cure. She headed the Jimmy V. Foundation for Cancer Research. And she had suggested a classic book by Clifton Leaf called The Truth in Small Doses Why We're Losing the War on Cancer and How to Win It. Right. Yes. So I had these three books with me. And what I really had not been tracking closely is the fact that within oncology and cancer research, oncologists and cancer researchers are immensely aware of the limitations of conventional and experimental therapies. And yet patients tend not to be aware.
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Lindsay McDonald and host Michael Lerner.
2: And so the real quandary, Lindsay, which I come to you for your thoughts about is if, if a cancer patient develops cancer and they go to their oncologist and they think, well, I can trust this person. I'm just going to go through it. It's hard. but I'll come out the other end. Hopefully, I'll do well. I think it's a very deep question as whether you want to disturb their faith and their treatment. Because faith in treatment, so-called placebo, faith in treatment is a major factor. Absolutely. I'm doing well. So the quandary that I'm facing, and I'm exploring this with you and with others, is... If people like you and I know about the limits of conventional and experimental therapies, if we track things really carefully, if we ask two dozen questions, if we're aware of this, and if we're looking outside, whether with Cleef or your colleague in Mexico or uh, uh, whoever else it may be, or doing health promoting uh, complementary therapies of the kind we trace on cancer choices. How do we square that circle? How do, we not, how do we not disturb the faith and the peace of mind of cancer patients who just want to trust their oncologist, while at the same time alerting people who would want to know about the fact that within oncology and cancer research, people are very concerned. So you have a lot of wisdom. I wonder how you could help us think about this. I
3: can help on this. I actually can. So when I realized that I needed to go, when things weren't working, okay, at some point, I realized that things were not working. Um, I was watching the cancer progress. We were doing things, new medications that weren't making any difference. But I did love my oncologist. But I also felt like there must be something else out there. And so I started researching. And more importantly, I brought I brought my oncologist into the search. Okay, so that was a big deal. I brought her an article from Dr. Cleef, that had been published in ASCO in their um, review. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to get into ASCO. And she knew that. Mm -hmm. So she read the article for me. And I asked, what do you think? And she was humble enough to say, you know what? I'm all for it. She knew that things weren't going well. And I think the humbleness of her, where she wasn't the person that had to solve everything, um, there was not a lot of ego with this doctor. And she ended up talking to Cleef. She talked to, in the end, Williams. She talked to, this is how I made a team. And she was not opposed to working with the team so where i think it begins is actually with the doctors who aren't so humble who will allow as things are not working because i'm a very big fan of conventional medicine if it's working and if certainly if you are stage 3 or stage 4 um that they become part of your team. It's not easy to find, but that is part of the initial trying to find a doctor that you really resonate with. Or at least having a doctor on the team, even if they're somewhere else, that understands that this may take a village. You know, they always have that statement. It takes a village. Sometimes it really does.
2: Uh, Nancy Hep has kindly put up the links to uh, the three books I mentioned, Malignant by Prasad, The First Cell by Raza, The Truth in Small Doses by Leaf. And, and these three books, they have quotes on the back cover from major cancer researchers and so forth. These people are respected in the mainstream. Laura Pohl kindly asks, uh, Lindsay, would you say more about what your oncologist was up against to stick to the protocols as required by her cancer center? Well, that's a very interesting question. And that is
3: a very true question. Um, unfortunately, the doctors that are with hospitals um, and in the United States, they have to do the protocols that the hospital has agreed to because to go out of it would set the hospital up for liability. Um, And that is very hamstring for them. So even if you bring, Hey, can I try this? If it is not part of the protocol, they're going to have to go up against their own tumor board because that's a group of doctors at the hospital, and explain why they want it. So it was just like when I brought her the ASCO article. I brought her something that was evidence-based. So that let her support me in going outside of protocol somewhere else. She was also willing to look at where there were exceptions. So very often, um, you can talk to the actual medical medicine provider and see if they can come in with a support for you that you can present to the tumor board. But there that is the reality. And unfortunately, in the United States, it's also the reality all over because of the FDA and you know i don't necessarily buy into the conspiracy theories etc and so forth but there is a system so if you want to go outside the system you kind of have to go somewhere else yeah that's that's
2: so true um and uh you know there's such a thing as um well known in in uh advocacy circles it's called agency capture and it's when an agency that's supposed to regulate uh, a field of work is actually captured by um, the industry that they're supposed to regulate. So um, many people would say that the Food and Drug Administration uh, 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 and to larger degrees National Cancer Institute and National Institutes of Health That there are uh, significant levels of industry capture, whereby um, people who have uh, lead appointments in these agencies, after they leave government, they go to work for big pharma or whatever it is. And immense amounts of money are involved. I just read today in in Clifton Leaf's book, which is a decade old, that uh, something over $18 billion has been spent on the war on cancer Uh, You know, and um, there's just an article in The New York Times today about how a big pharma company uh, had a blockbuster drug and legally extended uh, their uh, right to keep it on the market uh, and made one hundred and forty billion dollars on it. So the amounts of money are staggering. and, And you said I agree with you totally. It isn't about conspiracies. It's not about conspiracies. It's simply actually one of my senior colleagues in um, in cancer research, one of the eminent people in the country, says simply, you know, um, uh, medical research uh, and uh, medical care would be better off outside uh, the for-profit system. Now, I don't know if that's actually true because I, there are many people who will make the case that... Uh, actually, you know, so much of the progress that we've seen has been uh, because it's all for-profit. But so you have, on the one hand, the benefits of the for-profit system and its constant search for blockbuster drugs. And you have, on the other hand, uh, the immense distortions in cancer research and treatment that are caused uh, by the immense amounts of money and the industry capture and so on. So, But uh, so those are just reflections. Yeah.
3: You know, I want to bring up one other treatment that I did that I could not do in the United States because sometimes it's not just about the drugs. When I went to Vienna, um, Dr. Cleef used to do, when he was alive, a therapy, a heat therapy based on a very, very old. Yeah. Um treatment, Coley's toxins, right? Where they found that if you had a different thing going on, a virus, and it raised your temperature, that there was an effect on the cancer. Yeah. So Dr. Cleef used to put us in a high, high fever uh state. And there was always this week where you would be at 104.5 yeah. for 12 hours over and over and over for a week. That was an enormously, if we were to do that in the United States, it's enormously expensive. We have to be monitored every two hours over and over and over and over. And I think insurance would be having a really rough time if this is where we were going with it, and I think there are certain caps that we have put on treatments, and it wasn't it wasn't a new drug. it was a drug that was already out there, um, that he would use to spark the fever. But the maintenance of doing it was enormous. Mm, absolutely. It's such a conundrum. You know, on
2: the one hand, these agencies do protect us, do, they do things, all that good stuff. And on the other hand, they constrain us. And so it's the same conundrum uh, that I was talking about, about how do you allow the people who just want to trust their oncologist to have full faith in their oncologist and not trouble them? And at the same time, alert people who would like to understand to the limitations of conventional, mix. and it's—I don't know how to square that circle. That's why I'm asking. You know,
3: I don't know if it's about squaring the circle. Mm-hmm. I think it is about being open mm-hmm. to conventional care, monitoring what's going on, and I—I I cannot stress enough what monitoring means. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when it's not working, to be on top of it. One of the medicines that I was on, she wanted me to be on three months before we could decide. That was too long for me because Mm -hmm. I knew that my cancer that I was holding Um, was moving very, very fast. And three months would have not, if it wasn't working, I would have been in an even worse position. So it's about partially about the communication and the doctor that who is open to talking to you and not just to the disease. There's as you said, intuition, there is curiosity. There are so many things that the patient is holding and they need to be able to just not believe, and I hate to say this because I don't want to shake their um, their belief in, Their oncologist. Mm -hmm. It's not just their oncologist, it's the system. They have to think much bigger. And it's not necessarily the oncologist's fault that they don't.
2: They're very constrained. Yeah, yeah,
3: they're very constrained.
2: One thing we haven't talked about yet, you've you've been so helpful to us on Cancer Choices uh, and helping us both writing for us and helping us think about it, Um, but uh, we haven't talked about whether or to what degree health-promoting either self-care or complementary therapies. You've talked about Ralph uh, Cleef, you've talked about Williams and uh, Mexico City, but uh, you've talked about your navigation of different uh, mainstream therapies here, but what, what, and to what degree has been your journey with both self-care and more complementary therapies—be they supplements or herbs or uh, practices, stress reduction, exercise, all that?
3: It's okay. So, I don't think I'm a typical integrative care patient. Right. As you said, all of the places I went, um, they were using a conventional medicine, right. whether it was for that particular cancer or not. The integrative part, yes. At Cleef, I did some mistletoe. I did art um, Artemusian. I did Berberin. I did a lot of those kind of Supplements. But more importantly, during these nine years, I have had to learn what gives me joy. And that is huge for me because I would say that the worst thing that happens is you start to stress out Mm -hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen, whether you have cancer at this time, whether you've had it and you're worried about it coming back. All of these preventative things. Um, for me, I have found that looking at what truly nourishes me, and that's not necessarily going to be a supplement. It's not necessarily for me to be a uh, walk in the woods. It could be something completely different, which I know what it is, which is being in my sacred space, which is my apartment. I used to be an interior designer. I have made a space where every single thing I look at brings me joy. And sitting in that type of environment, for me, is the same as walking through the woods. It is just relishing the enormous joy that I have that doesn't answer the supplement question. The supplement question is a little more complicated, but it does answer the self-care um question. And it, you know, for other people, it may be something completely different. I get it. Yeah. Uh, it, you I'm know, ask a quote, uh,
2: and beauty will save the world. You know and that?
3: beauty will save the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a huge exerciser because honestly my bones are like sponges i mean they're i've been working with i've i've been full of cancer for 9 years um so exercising is a very delicate thing for me but it's about looking deep inside you figuring out when you feel joy for me and bulking up on that and then taking stress and looking at all of the things that stress you out and getting rid of some of them most of them if you possibly can our stress especially about stressing about the future we can't control the future the stress does not help we're not it's not going to make us control the future however joy really helps and stress is damaging doesn't bring anything to the party so that's the self-care mode that i think about the supplements are a different situation i really believe in micronutrient testing so if there is a lack of something If you are low on some micronutrient, it could be vitamin B. It could be one of the vitamin Bs. Those supplements work for me beautifully um, because you're bringing your body back to homeostasis. And I think that's the most important part of it. I also truly believe that you should not be self diagnosing which supplements you should take. I think that can be very dangerous. You need to be working at least with somebody or with a list of, you know, there's a couple of sites out there that talk about very seriously, cancer choices being one of them, actually um, what the benefits, what the actual uh power of that supplement really is instead of just saying, Hey, if I take this, this will be, it's not really like that. So you Mm -hmm. always have to go a little deeper and you always have to know to be careful because things can harm you without you knowing it Mm -hmm. because everybody says to do it.
2: What do you think, uh, happens to us after we leave this plane?
3: This is my favorite question. When I came to um, Commonweal, we had that evening on death. And that changed the way that I carried myself throughout the rest of my journey. What happens to us? I have no idea. I literally have no idea. I'm not overly worried about it. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe I go up there and I look at everybody, maybe I'm just a memory. I don't know. Um, but one of the the most powerful things that you said to me and to the group was that you gave us power to design our death Mm -hmm. and to talk about what we wanted and who would be there, what were our thoughts? Did we want readings? The sense of power that we had changed the fear. Mm-hmm. And fear of death is so rampant. The reality is we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. It If we don't die from the disease, we'll die from something else. And you gave us a way to come to peace with it. What happens after it? I have no idea. So what, I'm is not your
2: plan? what is your plan? You have you made a plan for how how you want to go? Yes. Uh huh. What is it?
3: Um, if I'm able, I want some of my very favorite people there. Mm-hmm. People where I feel complete freedom to be. It's such a core value of of living a human life and being able to express your authentic self in this whole life and death. So I want people there that I feel completely free with that. I mean, obviously, you're not judged when you're dying, but, you know, some family members might want to keep you around but who know that this is the way it goes and it's okay. And that people that can just be there wherever it is that I am and hold my heart in their heart Mm -hmm. is what I want to happen. And some of my favorite songs. You've you've, uh, talked
2: about, Joy is so powerful and uh, being an interior designer, making your apartment something that gives you joy everywhere you look. Um, Then you've talked about people being close to you uh, in the transition uh, whose hearts are with yours. So what about the power of love and healing?
3: Love? Mm -hmm. That we said. The power of love. The power of love. Mm. Um, I think that the power of it's such it's a complicated question. The power, the um power of love, if it's true and it's just based on the the human being in front of them, I think it's extremely powerful. Mm. I mean, there are times that you just want to be loved, you wanna be held. Um, but it needs to be pure. Some people, they love you, but they want things different for you than you want. That's tough because they're overpower. They're trying to overpower what I feel. So it's love, but it's love with a little, but, but I want you to do this. I think that, you know, unconditional love is huge if you can find it.
2: Yeah, no, there's no question that love is love at the human scale, uh, particularly love with the people we're closest to can be very complicated. That's just how it is. We're human. Yes, And it's um, quite a yoga to live with uh, closely with other people, uh, be they children or parents or partners or whatever, uh, who have their own agendas for how we should be in the world. So that's complicated. And I think you're absolutely right that when the love is not mediated by all the complexity of closeness, uh, it has immense power. And sometimes the people who we're close to can transcend all the things you're talking about and just give us pure love. But often, the pure love comes from friends or people who don't have to live with us every day. You yes, know, and uh, who can just love us in an easier way. I have to say, we just got a new puppy, uh, and mm. the uh, and both of us, my wife Cheryl and I the healing power of that puppy's love and our love for that puppy is just stunning. Yes. And so sometimes the love, um, and of course other people feel it in nature and in other ways, but... Wherever you feel it. Yeah, but the healing power of love, as you say, when it's pure or... I might even choose a different word because pure is a hard... Standard, but when the love is not complicated and they just somebody or some little being just loves us pure and simple, you know the healing power is immense, yeah, well, Lindsay, what have I not asked you about that you would like us to talk about before we come to a
3: close? There's one thing, yeah, um during this whole journey that people will go through if they have cancer is focus on how to remain authentic and powerful inside of themselves. And to know that things like fear crushes their ability to do that and not to be, to try not to be a victim because it's not going to help you. But when you know your own power to affect that, I think that is hugely important to bulk up your knowledge of yourself. Hmm. Does that it make sense to you, Michael?
2: It does. And I, as we begin to come to a close, I'd like to ask Laura Pohl and Nancy Hep to come back and join us. In case they have reflections. But Lindsay, this is such a beautiful conversation. I'm I'm so grateful. Thank uh, you. And here is Laura. Do you have any reflections on uh our conversation?
4: Oh, at the moment, I'm very full in my chest. Maybe it's because, in addition to what Lindsay's saying, my little puppy was uh lying here the whole time and sometimes seemed to be paying attention. Um Lindsay, um, you were talking about, um, you know, talking to your oncologist and being open and um, sort of pushing for things that you knew you needed. What about people who sense that, you know, what's going on with my treatment maybe isn't totally right for me or you know do we need it's not working um, but they might be fearful about talking to their doctors or there is there help advocacy
3: for people like that to help them? there is um certainly a lot of places including cancerchoices.org have navigators and coaches to help them decide how they are gonna approach it with the doctor, and to give them strength and resources. So when they go in, they, for the doctors that need evidence, to go in with that evidence, to make it a little easier for the doctors to understand where they're going. And also to know that they have somebody that they've discussed this with, even role playing, um, And what they're going to say that is still going to respect to the doctors, because honestly, these doctors are are very busy and they really don't want to not be respected. It, it will hurt their ability to connect with you. Um, But to also have the doctor see you as a human and not a disease, and that is huge, because doctors very often, you know, they have 15 minutes with you, they're only talking about the disease. But it's okay to talk a little bit about who you are and why you think this, and maybe you can develop a more human-to-human relationship with your doctor. And if that's what you feel like you need and you can't get it with this doctor, you might want to switch doctors, which is very hard for people to do. But the power of that connection is part of the treatment. It's not just the medicine. You might. Thank you. Nancy, any reflections? Yes, thank you. Um, Lindsay, often when I interact with you, and I feel blessed that that is often, I am struck by how authentic you are, that you preach joy and managing stress, but you still allow yourself to say, oh, I'm not feeling joy in this moment. And actually, I want to retreat and just hold this bad news for a little bit and not try to force joy or optimism or happy feelings. So I would just ask you to to comment on your approach to that. Thanks, Nancy. It's a good question. My approach is that, or my understanding is that we need to be able to feel all of our feelings because if you cut some of them off, like not feeling grief, not feeling, I don't even know another one right now, but feeling scared, you're allowed to feel scared. If you feel scared and you, you, drink that in you digest it and then you move on i think that if you're avoiding things like oh i'm not i'm not being positive today you have to honor what your body is feeling because it's your body and it's gotten you this far and it's your mind as well and strengthening that mind body connection And listening to your intuition. That day when I got those numbers that were doubled, it took me a couple of days and I did retreat. I just stayed in bed and pulled my covers up over my head, but I didn't judge it. I just felt it. And self judgment in this particular disease is a very difficult. Thing to bring in to hold. If you can release it, it it leads to joy.
4: I was going to ask Lindsay um, about the title of her book, her website. Um, it's not usually the language you see, um, and why why you called it that.
3: Thanks. That's a really good question. Usually people are fighting with cancer. In my book, your dance with cancer, everything that I do is about dancing. Um, Not that I'm a dancer because I, in traditional sense, I'm terrible in the traditional word. But what I realized was fighting with cancer, it was exhausting me. And I also didn't feel like with all the work that I was doing, and I didn't make it, I got to death. And if people said she lost her battle with cancer, as I've said before, I would jump out of that grave and strangle them. Because I didn't lose my battle. I did everything I could. I enjoyed it on the way there. I found ways, I have learned so much having cancer. There's actually a slight bit of gratefulness in there. And I realized that when dancing, when I thought about it as dancing, cancer became my partner, especially metastatic cancer. And it was up to metastatic cancer and me to get through the rest of my life. And when we have to learn new steps, if I have a reoccurrence, then we learn some new steps. But I'm not afraid of it. It is literally my partner. And that's freeing for me. Thanks.
2: You're welcome. Oh, beautiful, Lindsay. That's a beautiful, beautiful place to come to a close. Well, Lindsay McDonnell, uh, thank you so much for all your work with us and for all that you have done for others and for the field, uh, your website and your book. Uh your dance with cancer.com, your Facebook page, uh, helping us with cancer choices as an alum of the Cancer Health Program. We're so grateful and we've learned so much from you. So um, thank you for this time together.
3: Thank you, Michael. I would have rather not. I, this was the perfect place for me to be.
2: Wonderful. And thanks also to Nancy Hep, Laura Pohl. Kira Epstein, um, to all of our team and Adams um, for making all of this possible. Take care.
3: Take care.
2: Kira, back to you.
1: All right. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, it's wonderful to have your voice uh, at the New School and Cancer Choices. So thanks for being here and for all the wisdom you're sharing. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to re-watch or re-listen to the conversation or share it with other people, if you're on the New School or the Cancer Choices mailing list, or if you follow us, uh, you follow the New School on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, you'll be notified when the recordings are posted. Thanks so much for being with us at the New School of Commonweal today. We'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Lindsay McDonald and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Common Wheel is spelled C O M M O N W E A L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.